0: 1372 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs, presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindberg of The Ringer, joined by Sam Miller of ESPN. Hello, Sam. Hi, hey, Ben. We're going to spend most of this episode talking to the author, Joe Bonomo, about Roger Angel, the peerless longtime New Yorker contributor, really long time, since 1944, because Joe has a new book out. It's called No Place I Would Rather Be, Roger Angel and a Life in Baseball Writing. We both just read it, and we both love Roger Angel, and we're going to talk about Roger Angel's whole incredible career. So that was fun and will be fun for you. But before we get to that, anything you want to banter about?
1: Yeah, I just want to uh, talk about two things that that you and Meg talked about, but I wasn't there. Yep. <laughs> so one of them was the true win, the uh-huh. you know the true win. No yeah. through a true win. And as you noted, they are uh, in one way of thinking about it, rarer than no hitters. And as you you gave the caveat, as I gave the caveat uh, in my article that uh, they are impossible in the American League after the DH. And so if you look at the since 1908 time frame when they are less frequent than no hitters, I would still say that they are slightly more common per possible start than no-hitter. But uh, in this decade, they are clearly, by by any standard, much, much rarer than no-hitters. Uh, I think there have been, uh, I think, six this decade, and there have been 30-something no-hitters. So even if you adjust for for half the league, they're still rarer than no-hitters, much rarer than no-hitters. Mm-hmm. But that does not answer the question, which uh, w- sort of wanted to get into in the article I wrote, but, but did not because um, I wasn't sure what the answer was. And I didn't want this article to run 17 days later once I had finally figured it out the answer. Yeah, but
0: you got that thing up quick.
1: I did get it up quick. <laughs> Rarer frequently does not mean better, does not mean more impressive. Mm-hmm. Uh, all sorts of things are rare uh, and not not that impressive. So I'm curious to know, though, what is more impressive, a true win or a no hitter?
0: Clearly, a, a perfect game I think is the most impressive, Clearly. right? Yeah, yeah, and a perfect then, game is really something. Yeah, I honestly I think I prefer the true win, or I think it's more impressive. Just, I also prefer yeah, it, but but I prefer it. Yeah, <laughs> but I I do think it's more impressive because hitting is really hard for pitchers, and just to be good enough to hit a home run. Now you can be a bad hitting pitcher and just run into one. That happens now and then. Bartolo clone did it, so it can be done. But I think. Just having to do that, either way, you have to throw a complete game, which if you're throwing a complete game, you're probably pitching really well. So the difference between that game and the no-hitter, I mean, there are no-hitters that weren't even that impressive, that were mostly just a, a product of luck, if anything. I would bet. I wonder, actually, if you could compare the the like the game score, the average game score in true wins compared to no-hitters. I wonder oh, how ben. different it would be. Oh, you're have anticipating, you done that?
1: <laughs> you're anticipating the week's possible stat blast. I don't know <laughs> if it will be, but I have thought I have been thinking, okay. uh, perhaps, well, of, of stat blasting. Something well, along I'd these be
0: lines. interested in the answer because you get no-hitters sometimes where you just leave the guy in because he's pitching a no-hitter. and He's not actually pitching that well, really. He's walking a ton of guys and just Happens to have not given up any hits Often because balls were hit right at guys Whereas if you're a true winner Then you're left in the game Not in pursuit of some milestone But because you're actually pitching pretty well I mean not always and In the past it used to be much more common For pitchers to throw complete games Even if they weren't throwing gems But still I, I bet the difference is smaller than you think So that coupled with the dinger Which is pretty impressive on its own I, I think it's, uh, it's it's No less impressive to me
1: yeah, I uh, I I think that one of the reasons that we can even talk about it is because no hitters, uh, while os- often quite impressive, often quite awesome, uh, we now all have a library of bad no hitters that we've yeah. seen in our lifetime. Uh, there have been you know nine walk, hundred and sixty pitch no hitters that you watched and were like, well, that was more than I needed to see <laughs> yeah. uh, of that pitcher. So the fact that no hitters are somewhat flawed makes this. Uh, partly a conversation but but also the i mean what is i see this is what i keep coming back to is that instead of a a no hitter is is it's not a perfect game but you know it's basically like the reason it caught on is because it's like a near ideal version of pitching and the guy is a pitcher so you're seeing like a pitcher pitching at peak pitcherness and a true win is not that a true win is a pitcher who's who's pitching very well extremely by definition he threw a shutout that's great that's you know in one way of speaking uh, of thinking about it every every bit is as helpful to his team but it's not quite perfect pitching in the same way that no hitters are supposed to represent a, a, a sort of a form of perfect pitching uh, but he hit a home run which is a whole different it's a whole different skill it's a whole different professional athlete skill yeah. that he's not supposed to have uh, i i've been thinking about this like uh how uh Pete Buttigieg, the uh, presidential candidate, got a mm-hmm. bunch of uh, news a couple of months ago for
0: playing a spoon song.
1: <laughs> Did he really? Yeah. <laughs> what what spoon song? <laughs> I
0: forget, but he's well, that's great, a man. That's really player. cool. Yeah.
1: <laughs> wow. I might have to change this analogy. No, he's spoke... oh, he sat
0: in on the symphony too. <laughs> wow! All well, right. What else did he do? I didn't mean he, to turn spoke, this into a campaign Nor- rally.
1: He speaks Norwegian, and oh, right, yeah. So this this came up because uh, you know he some Norwegian film crew was going to interview him, and and he started speaking Norwegian, and everybody's like, "Whoa, Norwegian!" <laughs> yeah. And uh, the story is that he he. Like liked a Norwegian novelist. Only one of his books was translated, so he he learned some of the language so that he could read other books by this guy. You know, I, there's a lot of people that speak Norwegian. Like five million native speakers, for instance, don't consider it that hard to speak mm-hmm. Norwegian. But we give Pete Buttigieg credit because that's not his thing. Like he's a he's not a he's not a Norwegian speaker. He learned. How to do this other thing, or he accomplished this other thing that was like not in his lane. I also sort of feel like that. With there was this time, a period of time, um, like seven years ago, when everybody you knew over the course of a couple years learned that the guy who plays Jimmy McNulty is not actually American. And <laughs> uh-huh. it's like, wow, he's British. And you're like, yeah, he's all, I mean, he's a great actor who can also speak like everybody around you, but you're not impressed by the speaking like an American, except yeah. that he's not he's he's learned to do this other thing, right?
0: I don't know if I'd even use him as an example of the best American accent, but
1: well that's right. okay. But <laughs> yeah. accents in general. Sure. The, it's yeah. it's not impressive to speak like an Irish person speaks unless you're you're not Irish. And then you're mm-hmm. like, oh check out the guy's accent. That's fun. Yeah. Uh and so I feel like the fact that the pitcher hit a home run. I don't know whether to, to say like that is incredible not only did he throw a shutout but he hit a home run against a major league pitcher or if I, it should get less credit because that's not actually his job and it's just a fluke like lots of pitchers hit one home run it's just kind of a coincidence that it came in his shutout there's not any necessarily any super significance to the timing of it and it doesn't necessarily mean that he's a great hitter he's just like any any pitcher who can you know hit one every once in a while so mm-hmm. I have gone back and forth and I'm I'm still I still haven't talked myself into a position <laughs> I haven't well, to, I don't know about yeah I'm not even sure like I, like would it be more impressive if, if Pete Buttigieg was the best English speaker in the world like like, the, like if he was like if he was the most articulate Roger Angel. yeah if he was Roger Angel of the <laughs> English language or is it better that he's like like a 95th percentile English speaker and like a <laughs> third percentile Norwegian speaker, which is uh-huh. kind of what a pitcher throwing a shutout and hitting a home run is.
0: Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, I guess you could do both, right? How many true win no hitters have there been? Oh. <laughs> There've probably what? been. Let Sounds me see if right? my
1: spreadsheet has this. Uh, I don't know if my uh, I, it should. I would think it would. Let me see if I, I have this. Okay. Unfortunately, I've been working off of a uh, of an untitled spreadsheet that just has like seventy five tabs on it now, <laughs> where I'm just dumping data constantly and not labeling any of it. Wow. All right, here we go. <laughs> sort by hits. We got. No, wait, really? Wait oh. a minute. No, hang on. What? <laughs> no, I'm sorry. This is because I play index. That's why there's no picture. I play index the hitter side of it. Mm. So I don't know. Okay, I could, I could do it. I could. Uh, could I do it? I could. Do, it would take some time. Okay. Well, well I'll have curious. that for you on Wednesday.
0: Great. Right, thanks. You're really getting into true wins. This is you're making this year beat now, which uh, I don't know if that's a good beat to be on because we might never see one again. But. You might, but
1: you got a lot of chases. I got a, I got a, I got a true win chase the very next day. It was a very long shot true win chase because it's not as much fun when you need the pitcher to hit the home run. So Kyle Hendricks was throwing the shutout, and it was clear that he was going to have enough pitches to to do it if he uh, if he kept the shutout going. Yeah, and so then it was like. He might bat again, but Kyle Hendricks has like yeah, it's not I think that much two extra to, base to to hits in his career, <laughs> none of them are. Yeah. right. Exactly. Yeah, and then uh, you need the homer yeah,
0: early. But, that actually kind of that kind of hurts the true win as a spectator sport because you almost need the home run early to make it interesting. Otherwise, the the odds of getting the homer late are so remote that it's almost not even worth watching for.
1: Well, and again, I mean that goes back to the central question: is the fact that the home run is so unlikely. Does that make it more impressive? Not interesting. It's clearly more interesting because uh, home runs are so rare uh, that it makes this thing rare. But is it more impressive that a pitcher hitting a home run is super rare or is it more flukish that a home pitcher hitting a home run is super rare and that it's just like one of those weird things that happened it doesn't necessarily represent it's rare
0: but it's not really flukish right i mean you have to hit the ball hard to hit a home run <laughs> there are there's are some cheap shots but like
1: you know it's not a complete fluke yeah but okay so let me ask you this i guess L- if
0: you're just swinging hard and the principle of if you swing enough times you might occasionally hit one
1: this is what i mean by flukish there were i think, I think 19 pitcher home runs last year or 19 starters homered, I think, last year. If you were to run a simulation of the season, shake everything up and replay last season, basically, you might get 19 pitcher home runs, but you might have like one of the same guys doing it in the same game. You'd get 19 totally different home runs. Like you're just Mm going to get that many home runs from a league of pitchers swinging poorly at pitches for a year. You're not – like I don't really feel like one home run from a pitcher – tells me something about his true talent level. Yeah, but neither does the no-hitter, right? I mean, no-hitters are almost always fluky a little
0: bit. I've written the article, maybe you've written the article, where you go back and look at the one incredible play, sometimes more than that, that preserves the no-hitter. There almost always is one. Or there's just a a ball that's hit really well that wasn't an incredible play but could easily have been a hit if a fielder had been standing somewhere else. So that doesn't tell you that much (sighs) about the hitter's true talent either. No, you're right. The home run. I would think that just the ability to hit a home run probably tells you more about the pitcher's offensive ability than the no hitter tells you about his pitching ability. I don't know. At least relative to the the complete game shutout.
1: A shutout is more impressive than a pitcher home run, though, right?
0: Yes, I think so.
1: And so, uh, so once you acknowledge that, then you're you're putting the then you're you're sort of. Putting the no uh, the home run off in this like it, it's just a it's just a, a tool for creating a a a, a narrower filter mm-hmm. right it's not it's not the thing you came to see the no. shutout is the thing you came to see
0: that's true right I would prefer that pitchers didn't hit at all so I'm certainly not there to see them you know on,
1: but you 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 later in this episode yeah. you're gonna make a comment about pitchers hitting yeah and it's you make i mean it sounds to me like that comment that you make later on is that of a person who is glad <laughs> they hit it is very odd to me that now now you're saying in in, no, the, in the past
0: it's the comment of someone who has received many tweets and emails about why it's actually good that pitchers hit and has not been convinced, but has at least embraced one of the arguments that people make to my claim. So I prefer that they don't hit, but there is one thing
1: about them hitting that I take as the silver lining. Mm-hmm. So we'll bring that up. Okay. Well, I'm going to – I I don't I, – I maybe I'll settle this later in the week. I, I lean toward the true win is, is, is more impressive, mm-hmm. uh, but – I kind of want to think more about what I think about a pitcher home run because it is true that like Cologne hit that home run. Bartolo Cologne was the worst hitting pitcher in baseball history at that, like more or less at that point. Mm -hmm. And he hit a home run, and it wasn't even a cheapie. And I don't know that I don't know what that tells me about Bartolo Cologne. I don't. I don't. I haven't really fully. Digested that about
0: James Shields probably more than it does about Bartolo. He was pitching, but you could look at it in a, a win probability added way. I don't know if that's the satisfying way to look at it, but if you were to add the the WPA of the homer to the WPA of the pitching appearance, I bet that in general the true win ends up being
1: higher. Maybe, yeah. There's probably I would I would guess that there's a that if you looked at true wins, you'd find a lot more a, a greater than normal amount of blowouts for a couple of reasons. Mm-hmm. One being that the pitcher hit a home run against the other pitcher, so the other pitcher is probably not good. The other is that maybe the pitcher probably got on in those more at bats, which means that he was allowed to hit for himself, which might mean lower leverage later on. But I don't know, I really know about that. Yeah. Anyway, I I was a little disappointed that Syndergaard's true win w- was a one nothing true win because uh-huh. it really mudd- muddied the waters. Lots of people We're already talking about how this was the first time in, you know, 30 years that a pitcher had won a game like that. And so then that got kind of lumped in with like, oh, it's a true win. You got to win one nothing and you don't have to win one nothing. And I would rather he won like four nothing.
0: Speaking of rarities and players doing things that they're not primarily employed to do. On Monday, Pablo Sandoval pitched again, and is this a fun fact? I think this is a fun fact. This was tweeted by Sarah Langs, who I believe is an Effectively Wild listener at MLB. This was according to Elias, Pablo Sandoval's second player in modern MLB history since 1900, with a home run, stolen base, and scoreless pitching outing in the same game. The only other person to do it was Christy Mathewson in 1905. So even Roger Angel has not seen this happen before.
1: I'm going to bring this full circle. I'm in a no-hitter league with Sarah Langs. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, I like the fact. Good fun fact. Yeah, it, it made made especially good by the fact that it was also a Giants pitcher against also the Reds. Uh, yeah, did it 114 years ago? Right. All right. So my other thing that I wanted to mention that uh, you and and Meg talked about. You were talking about pitchers complaining about the juice ball and hitters not complaining about the juice ball, and you made the observation that like I mean, you know, basically it doesn't really matter. They're going to be as good relative to their peers regardless. Mm-hmm. You know, with some some players might be affected more, as you noted, but for the most part, they're going to be as good relative to their peers, regardless. They'll presumably be paid as much, regardless. And so, I have a question for you. In um, let's see, I don't know. Let's say in the National League in two thousand had an ERA, a, a league-wide ERA of four point six four, and the National League in uh, let's say two thousand fourteen had an ERA of three point six six. So we've got 3.6, 4.6. Call them that, okay? Mm-hmm. Do you think that the average pitcher, given the choice, would rather have an ERA of 3.8 in a league where the average is 3.6, or have an ERA of 4.4 in a league where the average is 4.6? <laughs> so they're they're either they're either a quarter of a run better in a <laughs> offensive league or a quarter of a run worse, but in an extreme pitching league. Which do you think they would prefer? Huh. If you sat
0: them down and told them exactly what you were proposing, I think they would probably take just being better than average. Just, you know, I, I think also, though, that... If you just quickly said it And didn't actually explain it A. You probably have a better reputation Among many fans if you have the lower ERA
1: for sure yeah, yeah.
0: Because fans don't know what the league average ERA in every year is they don't realize that sometimes you know if it's an extreme Era in one way or another but Most fans they look and they see 3.6 or 3.8 and they think That's pretty good and 4.4 Not so good so there's that There's the perception of it and There's just the general it's, it's probably more fun to give up runs less frequently even if everyone else is is given up fewer runs too it's nice not to be scored on so I think i mean if you asked me I would rather be better than average in the high offense league and I think you'd be better paid and your life would work out better in in a number of ways but if you just kind of superficially ran through that question i I don't know I don't want to say like players are dumb because like if i (laughs) if i say that they'd rather have the lower number not taking into consideration the league average i'm sort of saying they're like too dumb to realize that well matters what the rest of the league is doing let me
1: stick up for those dumb players Mm -hmm. i i i I don't know that you i I think there might be a case for the pitcher friendly league i think that uh for one thing you're going to be able to throw You're going to go deeper into games if you're in the low offense league, even if you're slightly worse. You're going to, you know, you're going to, it's going to be a less stressful sport for you as a pitcher. There's not Mm -hmm. going to be runners on base as much. You're not going to have to worry so much about being perfectly fine with everything. You don't have to throw every pitch perfectly, basically. And I feel like, uh, I feel like high offense uh, is bad for pitchers, like that it's not, not in a, like, it feels bad, but in a literal way, I think that it's bad for pitching development. I think that that's one of the reasons that I've hypothesized that there's no such thing as a pitching prospect took off in the 90s because everybody was looking around and seeing essentially no pitching prospects develop. But these guys were trying to be 23-year-old major leaguers in a league where uh, offense was out of control. It was outrageous. And I, I felt like there's a, you know, there's a, a hypothesis that simply being in that high offense, uh, being always in the stretch, having high pitch counts, having high pitch count innings, uh, for instance, uh, all of that is, is just bad for your development and bad for your health. Mm-hmm. And that if you suddenly turn baseball into a three run a game sport, uh, that you would probably have, uh, healthier pitchers who have longer careers.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. your you'd, injuries.
1: You'd also get to pitch into the fifth or sixth longer and get more decisions, which I think pitchers like to get decisions. Even even if they're not just you know being compared to the league average ERA, they they want to get the W. And mm-hmm. you uh, are more likely to pitch deep into a game if it's a low offense era, and uh, therefore maybe get more decisions.
0: Yeah. That's right. Although everyone else will also, but it doesn't matter
1: though. You, when you're on the mound, when it's your day to start, you're the only one who's trying to, to go seven deep, right? It's Mm -hmm. that's your job. And so, so it's more likely that you're going to get to do that job.
0: Yeah. Okay, there's a reasonable case there. I'm still taking the the below average ERA, but yeah, I see it.
1: Yeah, I uh I don't know what I would take, but I also I think that most pitchers would probably take the above average ERA. I wonder how far above average the ERA would have to be or how crazy I would have to make some of these numbers before mm-hmm. I thought that most pitchers would take. Maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm entirely wrong. Yeah. All right, that's all the banter I've got
0: Okay, one quick thing I have Which is that the Kansas City Royals Enter the day That day being Monday As a not very good baseball team They are uh, a losing team They've played 25 games And their record right now is 12-23 and 23. Not so good, but They do have 35 stolen bases, which is nine more stolen bases than any other team has. So this was something we talked about in the spring, and I was excited about the Royals, and then I got less excited because they were not running that much in spring training. And they didn't really run that much at the very beginning of the season either. But now they're really running, and 35 stolen bases through 25 games— That is a a pace for 226.8 stolen bases. That's a lot of steals. That would be the most since the 1993 Expos, who had 228, and no other team since then has had more than 201. So they are sort of fulfilling the promise thus far of what we wanted the Royals to be. Therefore, are they fun or are they still not fun because they're just a bad team?
1: There was a first and third play that uh, Billy Hamilton was on first and Terrence Gore was on third. Yeah. And did they you both see this?
0: Got, is this the one where they both got thrown out? Or? Unbelievable. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and that, that basically wiped out all fun potential. That was like <laughs> Don Zimmer's bases loaded hit and run failing once <laughs> in the 11th inning meant that like there was no way he could redeem himself with bases loaded hit and runs no matter how many times it worked that i think at that point i just thought i don't want to support this i I don't (laughs) even want it to work anymore Uh but i do like there have been a few times when hamilton and gore have been on at the same time and i've been i've been watching those games for some reason and been like here we go double steal and uh they haven't that's the only time i've seen them go Okay. Well,
0: there was the highlight where what Hamilton scored from, uh, was it second on a sack fly this year? And then uh, Uh that was kind of exciting. So... There have been occasional plays like that, and I'm glad that they are living up to the billing. I can't say that I'm very regularly tuning into Royals games just because of the speed or for any other reason, but I appreciate that they are an outlier in the stolen base category, which is what I was hoping they'd be. So mixed results so far. They're fulfilling their promise, and yet I'm not sure that it's quite as fun as I wanted it to be
1: tons of triples though yeah and everybody thinks triples are fun
0: yeah that's right so i mean they're not a good hitting team they're not abysmal either they don't strike out a, a whole lot for the standards of today but they're not like an extreme contact batting average team like they're batting 244 they're just they're not very good it's just that they they steal lots of bases and i mean Terrence Gore's season so far is pretty fun. I think you'd have to say not only has he racked up 21 plate appearances for me in the minor league free agent draft, but he is a 163 WRC plus, slugging he's, 550. Yep, hitting 400 through 15 games, so uh, that's not bad. Mondesi's pretty fun. He's got 10 steals and not as much power as I'd like, but he's still slugging 500 plus, so it's it's something. <laughs>
1: Ben heavens the the man is a shortstop who's slugging five eighteen yeah, and he doesn't have I'm as spoiled. much power as you'd like. <laughs> yeah. how I didn't even know you had a strong take on how much power you'd like on to say but the to find out that it's more than a five eighteen slugging percentage is eye-opening
0: <laughs> yeah i guess my my expectations are <laughs> maybe a little too high what did he he slugged like in the in the second half of last year what did yeah he was over 600 yeah in the second well, half of last i year. wasn't expecting that to continue but i'm just pointing out that they haven't disappointed me if anything i've disappointed myself by not tuning in to watch them more often because they're doing what i wanted them to do
1: yeah yeah Alright. Also Hunter Dozier
0: has a top five war in the majors, right between Mike Trout and Alex Bregman. Go figure. Okay. So we'll take a quick break and we'll be back with Joe Bonomo to talk about his new book, A no Place I'd Rather Be, and the legend Roger Angel.
2: Looking like a new York.
0: been about three and a half years since the release of This Old Man, the most recent book by Roger Angel. But if we can't enjoy a new book by Angel, we can at least enjoy a new book about Angel. And Sam and I just have. The author who's given us that gift, which he named No Place I Would Rather Be, Roger Angel and a Life in Baseball Writing, is Joe Bonomo, who joins us now.
2: Hey, Joe. Uh, hi, how you doing? Great. Thanks for having me.
0: Happy to have you so I've personally had two brief and somewhat unsatisfying interactions with Roger Angel just kind of Chris Farley interviewing Paul McCartney type things where I said hello and attempted to express my admiration awkwardly and I've tried two times both unsuccessfully to interview him in a more formal fashion so I'm envious of you because you've figured out a foolproof way to have an audience with angel which is write a book about him so I, I wish I had thought of that
1: not not that foolproof proof though. Like it didn't, you didn't get the feeling that like Roger was, was sitting around just like hoping someone would write a book about him. Like I, well, yeah, that's I got a feeling <laughs> that he had to be kind of persuaded.
2: Well, I was going to ask about that. So yeah, he, you, you guys are absolutely right. Uh-huh. Yeah. He was not waiting, uh, sitting around for someone. In fact, I, uh, it was a, a bit of a, a journey to get this, this, uh, book. Okay. By Roger, because, um, I had written him some emails and he had written back and kind him of, kind of a friendly way. But as soon as I broached the idea of a book, he uh, he, he blanched, actually, and uh, grew concerned because he made it very clear to me, the, the last thing that he wants is a biography. And uh, he's a very, he's a private man. He's a reserved man. And so I respected that. Luckily for me, that wasn't the book that I was setting out to write. I was writing a book about his career uh, rather than a book sort of uh, in, in a conventional biographical sense. So I had to, of course, tell him that in writing about his, his career, I, of course, had to couch it in his biography, in his life story, but I wasn't going to uh, to quote anything that he hadn't written about himself already, nor was I got to uh, pry uh, in, a, in a really untoward way with anyone I was talking to for the book, uh, but he was really, really adamant about that. In fact, his colleagues and ex-colleagues at the New Yorker magazine uh, also made it very clear to me that until uh, I had Rogers okay, they probably weren't going to... Uh, be very responsive for the book, so uh, I had to I had to convince Roger that I wasn't writing a biography and that he was that he was cool about it.
1: What was the uh What was the origin of of this idea? I mean, that, that's a a big project to sort of start thinking about. Was this always going to be a book? Did you just kind of want to write something critically about his his writing,
2: or or what? Well, I've been a fan for a long, long time, baseball fan since I was a kid. Oh, sometime in the early '80s, I I noticed a book called Late Innings on my, my dad's bookshelf, and I, I took it down and instantly fell in love with, with Roger's writing and with his writing style and, uh, you know, read everything, as his fans do, and kept up with him in the magazine and, and then online. Uh, a few years back, actually, maybe, maybe 10 years ago, I started blogging about him. I'd be, I, you know, it's an, it's an annual, uh, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a routine of mine, and I know of many of his fans uh, in the dead dark of winter, you pull out your favorite Roger Angel book, you know, to get you through to spring training. And I was reading him one time in, in January, February, and it just struck me again how, how amazing his, his essays are and, and, and how unique he is, especially. And so I started blogging about him, and, and I blogged quite a bit about him on, on my blog. And one day I realized, you know, this is probably enough that I could turn into a, a book. And I decided just one day, let me do it, because I, I, like I like to write books that I want to read. And I, I wanted to read a book about his career.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about the conversations you had with him and the access you had to his archives? Because I was impressed by how often you cited the contemporary notes he'd jotted down while working on these decades-old essays, which was really revealing at times.
2: It was. Uh, that was really the the, the the most fun thing that happened in the research. After I decided to uh, to write the book, I, in doing some research, learned that he had donated uh, what amounted to 66 boxes of his, uh, archives to the, uh, baseball hall of fame, uh, sometime in the early 90s. And remarkably, they're open to the public once you get, you get permission. So, uh, at this point, Roger had okayed the book and then he okayed my, uh, accessing his, his archives. I set it up at the hall of fame, drove over to Cooperstown and spent three days or so, you know, in nine to five in the great Bar research center library there. Uh, the top of my head coming off at what I was finding in these boxes, uh, his his original manuscripts with with corrections and edits, his his uh, his his box scores, all of his game notes, things he's collected over the years, notes scrawled on the back of you know mid-century Manhattan uh, restaurant um, placemats and these kinds of things, all of his audio tapes, photographs, just absolutely amazing access to to watching his writing process sort of come in come into, it come into being. And as far as conversations with him, uh, we spoke on the phone. He was generous. I could have I think spoken with him longer than it turned out I, I thought that I needed to. He offered uh, to talk to me again. We've been corresponding in email for years now and his wife Peggy Mormon has been ter- terrifically helpful in that way too. So again, once he sort of realized what I was doing and, and it was something frankly he was he was very grateful for. Uh, he was. Uh, he was, uh, gave me access uh, to, to his archives and then to, in, to talk to him.
1: So one of the great thrills of reading this book was seeing glimpses of those uh, notes, his, his sort of game watching notes and seeing how they informed the final product and um, seeing just like the sheer amount of like jotting that he did. Like so much of what he did was just jot down things that uh, I sort of feel like uh, after a few years, uh, you uh, you kind of get lazy and you only jot down some things and he never quit jotting. He just jotted everything and I liked that. I'm curious to know if you got a, f- a feeling that the ideas that he had or that the experience he had watching a game that he would later write about would get kind of changed for narrative purposes. Did you see any kind of contradictions between uh, the notes that he was writing when he was in the crowd and the you know final fifteen thousand word crafted narrative that has to you know uh, be interesting enough to uh, fill a general interest magazine was there much change like did you I guess uh, this kind of gets to the question of authenticity and and kind of like the performative nature of writing sometimes was was the Roger who was watching a game totally perfectly overlapped with the Roger that came through in the final. Uh, articles, or was there a little bit of kind of rehearsing and practicing and shifting and changing and finding the the article that would work best?
2: Yeah, there was of course some of that. He was from the beginning presenting uh, the Roger Angel persona, of course, as, as all writers do. But I tell you what, what was remarkable for me to notice was how you you asked if there was a contradiction. Amazingly, no, very little contradictions between the the notes he jotted down and wherever it was, some crappy little minor league park. Or whether it's Fenway Park during the '78 playoff game, whatever it was, you know, jostled with with fans around him or sitting with, with older types, he was writing and thinking in complete sentences, even in his game notes. And what's especially interesting to me is is how 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 uh, how small of a distance there was between the notes he took, the observations he made at games and then this sort of narrative, sort of fiction writer's uh, pace that he would use and and, 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 and and evoke these observations and these details he noticed in the game. As we all know, he's among great things about angels that he appears effortless on the page. And there was uh, very little shaping he had to do of his observations and his notes, except to Put them into a narrative context of the game or of the season. Um, it's one of my favorite things I, I discovered in the in the archives. Was in the back of uh, one of his note pages. He wrote. By the way, his handwriting is atrocious. <laughs> I mean, it, it, that, that one of the hardest, surprisingly hardest things to do in this book was to to, to, to decipher the hieroglyphics of, of Roger Angel. But I was able to do it. And on the back of one page, he wrote, "J.R. Richard pitches like a man falling out of a tree." <laughs> yeah which of course is a classic angelian sort of observation and great kind of evocative detail and he just scribbled that on the back of a sheet of paper uh, and he circled it with a red pen later which means in most cases well in all cases uh, use this in other words this is worth using and in most cases he actually used it and, and I'm pretty sure that ended up in one of his one of his 70s pieces but they were scrawled on the back of anything he had he had at hand uh, one one particular thing I noticed, which was interesting, is and frankly, one of the surprises of writing this book, I love being surprised when I write a book, and I was at, uh, at how um, how disappointed and, and displeased Angel was with a lot of the changes in the game. Now, he's always been public about it in, in his pieces, but when I gather them all together to start reading sort of at once, I realized there really are common threads of kind of distant not, not, not disenchantment, that's too strong because he always could plug himself back into the game that he, he loves so much, but he was really put off by a lot of the, the changes in the game, starting with expansion in the 60s and then television, especially in the 70s, and then the labor skirmishes, you know, basically since then. And what what struck me once was uh, one of my favorite pieces of him is uh, In the Bubble, his, his piece about the Houston Astrodome, which he wrote a year after the, the dome opened. And he went and spent a couple of days there watching baseball, talking to the, the uh, executives in, in the Astrodome, and the place really repulsed him. I mean, he was really almost angered by this move indoors and by the attempt of the Astros, I mean, in a very prescient way, attempt by the mid-60s Houston Astros to turn a beautiful, slow, sometimes dull game into this sort of spectacle, almost as if Roger was looking into, into this century. Uh, and his notes were particularly irksome and, and upset, uh, and again, kind of pissed off, and it was interesting to see how he moved from those, at those very subjective, kind of grouchy responses to the elegant kind of New Yorker style of writing in that particular piece, his his skepticism is still there, but but uh, much more elegantly presented than in his, his his notes.
1: That was a sort of a theme of it seems like of your book is that there as as we progress further in time, you can sort of feel that Roger is getting further and further from his his idealized version of baseball, which is unsurprisingly that of his youth and, and young adulthood. But it also seemed to me that. A lot of times he he did come around on things that mm-hmm. uh, his negativity was often reversed to some degree, or at least uh, you know he accepted the whatever the change was. You know, a decade later is that a fair reading?
2: Oh, absolutely, yeah. And that's one of the remarkable things about Angel, I think, is uh, in the book I mentioned when his editor then uh, his New Yorker editor William Sean, sent him down to his first spring training in 1962, he said, go down, you know, see if you can find something to, to, to write about, uh, but promise me two things. You, you'll be skeptical and don't be cynical. I think that's what it was. And those two things have kept, kept Roger in, 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 a, in a good place for a long time because he always allows himself or encourages himself to remain surprised by the game. To be startled by the game. Startled is a word that he uses countless times in his essays, from his very first piece to his his uh, acceptance award for the Spink uh, Lifetime Achievement Award at the Hall of Fame in, in 2014. Always open to how the game can startle him, uh, and yeah, he was initially put off very much put off by television, but came around eventually to to liking it. He is still skeptical about some of the uh, the the, uh, the sabermetric influence on the game, but has also come around to being very conversant with OPS and with war, which is not a lot of things you can say about a baseball fan who's about to turn one hundred. <laughs> but he's always right. remained open to the way the game can can surprise and, and delight him.
0: Yeah, and I believe he was even down in Sarasota this spring at age 98 going yep. back to spring training yet again even though it's a, a little harder for him to get around these days but his appetite for it is still there and it's funny you mention his descriptions of movements and swings and deliveries and you quote many of them in the book and they're so clever and literary and rhythmic and I wonder whether that is something that is lost a little these days because we're not so much in the habit of describing what players look like because because everyone knows what players look like. I wonder whether this is to some extent a relic of his coming out of an era where as he says and you say in the book, often the only experience of a game or a player was what a writer described because you could only hear it or read about it if you weren't actually at the game. And so, you know, nowadays we can just drop in a gif if we want to show you what uh, someone's windup looks like or or their swing or we can quote the angles and the miles per hour and all of that and and we can all watch any game we want but his descriptions are so wonderful that I wonder whether you ever found yourself lapsing into almost Angelian language as you were writing this, because at times when I feel like I'm sort of stuck in a rut, I will just pick up a Roger Angel book and just read a page. And not that I'm trying to imitate him, not that I even could if I wanted to, but it just kind of puts me back in the mindset of trying to write in a a lyrical pleasing way.
2: I do the same thing when I'm Trying to write about music and feel stuck, I'll pull Lester Bangs off the shelf and, and 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 dive in. But I can't write like Lester Bangs, and I can't write like Roger Angel. So any impulse I had to toward Angelian uh, excellence in my writing, I, I resisted because I know I couldn't I couldn't reach it. But yeah, I mean, I mean he's a fascinating. Use the word relic, and that's the word I use in my intro. His long essays, especially not his more recent work, because he's, he's he's tapered off, of course. But his his classic essays, if you will, in the in the 70s and the 80s. They were so long, and we just don't see that anymore. I mean, it's remarkable to think just how how big of a magazine, literally big a magazine, The New Yorker was. It was a weekly magazine that would run, on average, from 150 to 200 pages, and that arrived in your house every week. And and the, the amazing thing about Angel, for all of us, the great thing, the lucky thing for us is, yes, he was is a gifted writer, and yes, he he, he, uh, he brings to bear the The experience he had writing short stories for many, many years before he turned to writing baseball with this sort of fiction writer's eye to context and the evocative detail and narrative and all of that. But the the best luck was that he landed at The New Yorker at a time in American uh, pop culture history when magazines were fat, they were expansive, they were stuffed with ads, and so he had a lot of room to write, and especially at The New Yorker, he was blessed with editors that encouraged him to write as long and as far and as deep as he wanted to. If he had made the, what I think would have been, unhappy decision, say sometime in college, to choose a career in journalism, he would have been a terrific baseball journalist, but I don't think he would have been nearly as happy. I don't think he would have felt nearly as satisfied as a writer because he had to hit the tight news peg, the deadlines, the pike width, etc. At The New Yorker, he had just ample, ample, almost endless space to write. And that's what allowed Angel to become Roger Angel, to be great. Is because he was given permission and encouragement to write these long essays, these long sentences, these long paragraphs that really took himself and his readers on this deep dive in, in, into baseball. And they, they certainly are relics, you know, relative to, to baseball writing now, certainly. There are more people writing and publishing baseball writing now than ever before, but everything they write is much smaller. And arguably, our attention spans are smaller. That 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 old argument, but not when Angel was w- w- was working. So they're relics, but I think they might best be viewed as tonics in a way, because they require us to sort of slow our pace if we're going to dive into and read a sort of a, a, a classic era Angel piece from the from the '70s or, or the '80s, which apart from you know long reads and a couple few few places online, we really don't have the opportunity to read. In particular baseball writing, that that is that long and sophisticated and, and elegant. Um, so to, to answer your first question, yes, I might have felt inspired to write like him or after him, but I, I resisted it and let his, let his great words do most of the work in the book. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned the timing and the
0: luck and the circumstances that produce someone like Angel. And I was thinking about that as I was reading the book, not to minimize his talent at all, which is obviously prodigious, but the circumstances and the households he grew up in and the The era he grew up in, you couldn't imagine a better breeding ground for a baseball writer as he eventually turned out to be. I mean, you not only have this golden age of New York baseball where he grew up and the Yankees and the Giants were winning every year, but you also had – his father, who was not a perfect father by any means, but was kind of a bigwig in the ACLU and certainly was intellectually stimulating and helped instill a love of baseball. And then you have his mother, who is a prominent longtime editor at The New Yorker, and then his stepfather, who's E.B. White. <laughs> I, you know, we get questions all the time of how do you become a baseball writer? And if you wanted to emulate Roger Angel, I don't know how you could recreate those conditions. He was almost brought up in like a, a laboratory to create the perfect New Yorker writer.
2: Right. And 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 he, he took it to heart. I mean, he, he he was aware of his great fortune, still is. And, and, and you know, But it's funny that when, when he was hired at the New Yorker in 1956, uh, as a fiction editor, there were some grumblings of, of, of nepotism, because although his, his mother, Catherine, had had more or less retired from the magazine at that point, she still was around, and and of course her presence was there for for a long time afterward. But he had established himself really as a as a, an editor, and this was something that I knew a little bit about. But until I wrote the book, I wasn't very uh, uh, I, I didn't know this uh, to the degree that I do now. But he was an, an editor at uh, Holiday Magazine for ten years before he joined the New Yorker. Holiday Magazine was a kind of a glossy, splashy travel magazine. But based on look and life and those kinds of magazines in the mid-century. Uh, and he had also published a book of short stories in 1960. So by the time he arrived at The New Yorker, he was really kind of, he actually had a kind of a small career going already as, a, as, a, as an editor and as a, as a short story writer. So he arrived with, with quite a bit of accomplishment already, but that is not taking into consideration, as you mentioned, his childhood and his adolescence. you write the intellectually stimulating father and also physically inspiring father too. Uh, his mother, the first fiction and poetry editor at The New Yorker, uh, who, who really guided and shaped the tone of the magazine in, a, in inestimable ways. And then his stepfather, E.B Wright, who we can safely say, one of the great essayists of the 20th century, both of his work in The New Yorker and, and with Harper's. And he, he, no, he, he took very uh, he, he, noted, he took note of his, of the work ethic of his mother and his stepfather. Uh, he was never going to try and write like anyone other than himself but he was he did emulate his parents work ethic and i think that almost was as much or perhaps even a greater influence on angel's career than the actual writing style of his of his stepfather he would see eb white disappear into his writing room all day and come out and having uh, you know agonizingly sort of struggled with this piece that ended up sounding and appearing effortless on the page and loaded with great E.B. White intellect and, and observations and, and, and ideas. So he really took that sort of work writing ethic uh, to heart. But yeah, a lot of it, as, as frankly it is with everything, is, was luck and providence for, for Roger Angel. I'm just grateful that he landed at a magazine that gave him the space to work because that's what he needed to become great, I think.
1: My response to everything that Ben was laying out about his background and his upbringing is the opposite. It's, uh, I mean, it obviously is a great upbringing to create an incredible baseball writer, but it's not an upbringing that you would think would lead someone to baseball writing uh, because, you know, it's a fairly frivolous topic relative to, you know, what New Yorker writers were doing. And I, I, at the time, and I am curious to know how much you think, Roger Angel gets credit for baseball being, you know, a writer's sport the way that. It, I've I've heard it said that that baseball and boxing are the, the two sports that like real writers like to write about or something like that. Something right. um, you know, somewhat um pretentious like like that. And I'm trying to think though be other than than John Updike's mm-hmm. essay about Ted Williams that mm-hmm. that came out a few years before Angel started writing about baseball. It I don't really think of much kind of like highbrow baseball writing before angel
2: well there wasn't there wasn't really yeah
1: so i don't was he i mean this was a part-time job for him like he was the fiction editor for the new yorker which is a much it seems like a much bigger deal on paper than the (laughs) two or three times a year baseball writer did did he ever anticipate that he was making a career shift uh, when he started doing it
2: he absolutely did not and that's, the, that's, again, one of the other funny and sort of remarkable things about this is he was 42 years old when he wrote his first baseball piece. Isn't that amazing? And we think of this man who's devoted his life to writing baseball and, and, and his well-earned uh, uh, reputation or as, what, as the greatest living American baseball writer, but he didn't start writing until he regularly really about baseball until he was in his early 40s, which, of course, age you know, when you're 40 in 1960, that's different than being 40 in, in, in 2019. So he was up there. Um, and what happened famously is William Shawn said, you know, we're trying to get some more sports writing in, in The New Yorker. We've covered boxing and, and tennis and, and college football and a couple things on baseball. But he knew that Angel was a fan and, and Shawn was famous for letting his writers kind of immerse themselves in whatever it was that, that turned them on, whatever it was that they were curious about. So he, the, the two of them agreed to go down there. And it was just to write the one piece. He said, I'll go down to spring training. The New York Mets are, are here. It's their first year. It's a good story. I'll, I'll see what I can find. And he filed all folks behind the home, behind home, his first piece. It ran in 1962. He decided, why not a, a postseason season season recap too? I'll give that a shot. And he did. But he did not think of this as a turning point or, a, or, a, or sort of a, a left or a right turn into something different because he was fiction editor and, and uh, an influential one and a great one and a hardworking one. And the baseball pieces were something that just happened. But it's, again, testament to the... The, the 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 wide birth that the New Yorker and his editors gave him and also of course to his talent and to his interests that he turned this into something regular and, and and something and something remarkable but no he was he was a this was not a career shift that he was planning this happened entirely by surprise which is all the more remarkable
0: Yeah, to go back to our previous question about the circumstances he was raised in, I guess another way in which you could say that, if anything, it it could have encouraged him to go in a different direction is that you could imagine that being immersed in these conversations constantly about the magazine and the editor and deadlines and pieces, you might have the the opposite reaction and want nothing to do with that in your professional life, which uh, I can kind of identify with because my parents are more on the financial end of things and I have many memories of conversations about how the market was doing that were just incredibly boring to me as right. a small child and I don't know if that's why I went in a different direction or, or whether I always would have but but you can imagine that having happened to to him too. You do mention that there was uh, some slight rebellion in that he didn't apply himself all that much in school whereas his, uh, his mother particularly I think had been a very good student so that was his form of rebellion just not getting great grades but of course he was writing the whole time and and applying himself in other ways. And, And as you say, he didn't start baseball writing in earnest until he was past 40. And I think if you can do that, that's great, because I think if you've done a lot of other things first, then you bring that knowledge and perspective of other topics and other ways of approaching writing to baseball writing, which is, I think, part of why he's so great at it, is that he's not just writing about baseball, he's writing about something bigger although it seems like he sort of resists that idea a little bit. Uh, you had some of his New Yorker colleagues saying that and attributing that to him, that his essays always have a, a subject, which is baseball, and then a, an object, which is something different entirely. Right. But he seems to resist the idea that he is writing about life in a larger sense.
2: Yeah, I think, I think frankly, that's a bit shtick at this point. Uh, mm-hmm. th- there's no way that uh, someone as, as smart and as self-aware as, as Angel is, uh, couldn't realize that uh, he is writing about the game as a way of, of writing about what it means to be alive. Uh, he's a very he's a very modest person to his credit, at least at least in his in his public persona. Um, and so I think that that, that's part of where that, that, that comes from. He sort of resists the, 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 the laurels, is the word he uses at, at, at one point, that people want to sort of drape upon them. And I, I get that. I appreciate that modesty. The other interesting thing I, I, I learned, or I didn't learn, I guess I had, I, I had um, reinforced, I guess, uh, when I was talking to Adam Gopnik and, and Remnick and some of the folks, the New Yorkers, Angel very much resists the word essay, too. Uh, because the New Yorker magazine resists the word essay. They never use it. They don't publish essays at the New Yorker. They publish pieces. Uh, I think that might be changing slightly now. Uh, Adam Gottman calls it a bit of an affectation, but I think it's the general New Yorker sort of idea that yes, we know we're highbrow. We know we're literary, but we want to appeal to a wide audience, a sophisticated audience, an educated audience, a curious audience, but an audience that isn't necessarily in the, the, the market for literary or, God forbid, academic writing. So coming along writing in that New Yorker tradition and being an editor of the New Yorker for the, those many years, I think it's instinctive in Angel to resist a tag that might make him uh, appear too literary or too academic. Uh, but at this point, he, has to, he, he, has to, he recognizes the, the amazing career that he's had in not just writing about baseball, but writing about life.
1: One of the things that was uh, somewhat frustrating uh, about reading this very good book is that you would refer to things that uh, he'd written that were from like 1950, and I would want to immediately read them. And like a lot of them were not 12,000 word articles, but sort of smaller things or comments in the New Yorker, things of that nature. Yeah, I don't know if you, uh, how, how precisely you can answer this, but to a person who has, let's say every book from the summer game, game onward, what percentage of his writing does that comprise how how much has he written that is not in a book
2: oh i have a a a, uh in the course of writing this book a printed out stacks of his uncollected essays that have have got to be two feet high i mean there's tremendous and some some really really great pieces like in particular his uh his piece in what was it eighty two I guess on the on the on the Milwaukee Brewers
1: oh that's like Ben and I I think have both uh, have both used that
2: before yeah. oh it's one of his best yeah when he go when he visits the bar you know where all they're they're hanging out and where they live in the back and uh, and he just oh he just brings that that kind of tavern uh, white you know blue collar Milwaukee kind of milieu to life uh, that was not included in the book I think he excerpted it in, in the game time a little bit later but there are a lot of his really terrific pieces that. That haven't been collected yet, uh, and not to, and I'm just talking about baseball pieces. But then there are, you know, kind of light casuals that he's written, uh, which the bulk of which he collected in in his second book, Day in the Life of Roger mm-hmm. Angel. But a lot since then that never got published. Not all, but the highest quality. You know, a lot of it is kind of um, parodies and sort of light, light stuff, as opposed to his baseball pieces, but just in considering his baseball pieces alone, there is a lot that hasn't been collected, because his last two books, as you guys know, have been non-baseball books, This Old Man is Most Recent, and then Let Me Finish, uh, an absolutely terrific book of of autobiographical essays, which I think is going to be considered one of his best books, one of his finest books, Uh, but no baseball pieces in either of those, very, very few anyway, and so it's been 15, gosh, when, when was his last baseball book? Published game time was 2003, I think. So it's been 16 years since he's had a baseball book, but he's written consistently about it since. So, and and then there's a lot of uncollected pieces before that. So yeah, there's a lot out there still.
1: And and so the the New Yorker archive, uh, if you're a subscriber is it's, it's all technically available, but it it can be very difficult to read articles on, um, you know, from the New Yorker in the 1950s. It's not a great experience all the time. If if there was one article that is not collected in one of these books, uh, I use the word article uh, Peace. forget what piece. Piece. There's Never. one piece, or 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 less than a piece. Maybe yeah. just a comment. Maybe just a, you know, something in Talk of the Town or something. But that you think is really worth seeking out and reading. Uh, in the New Yorkers uh, archives, uh, is there is there one you'd recommend?
2: Yeah, there there are a couple. The first is the is the one I already mentioned, that the the, uh, the uh, Brewers piece in the early '80s is I think prime angel, and and I, I really recommend everyone track that one down. The name of which is is escaping me. But he had a lot of small pieces, too, um, a lot of casuals uh, that I mentioned earlier, in, including an interesting one, which was an unsigned casual uh, in 1967, which was a very uh, anti-Vietnam War uh, casual, uh, sort of reflecting the New Yorker magazine's general stance against the war. Uh, and it's interesting to read his, some of his non-baseball pieces in that regard. But there are three pieces that I that I really like, which are unfortunately long gone, and they're actually his his, his short stories. He published three baseball-related short stories, uh, two of which he gathered in his first book, which was a book of his short stories called The Stone Arbor, uh, long long out of print, unfortunately. Uh, he gathered two of those under a, a title called um, The Summer Not the Summer Game. I forget the name of it, but he collected two of them under the under the same title. Uh, And then there was a a third short story called Opening Day. And all three of those stories, as I write about in the book, involve two uh, uh, middle-aged women uh, ball fans who like to drink during the day. (laughs) They spend their afternoons in the bars. And they're just beautiful slice-of-life stories about these two female baseball fans and the fun they're having in the bar, getting tipsy, talking about baseball. And that third piece, Opening Day, uh, which he didn't include in his first story, in his first book. Excuse me, is a really, really terrific short story uh, that really brings to life the mid century. Evokes the mid century sort of New Yorker baseball fan sitting at a bar talking about them Crummy Brooks and and the New York Giants and, and the Yankees. And I wish that those three of his early early short stories about baseball would be more easily accessible, but, but unfortunately they're not.
1: Yeah, that first short story that he wrote, The, the Killing, which uh, is is extremely generously described as a baseball short story. Yes, it basically right. is a baseball short story in that two baseball players were mentioned. But one of them is uh, Fat Freddie Fitzsimmons, who uh, <laughs> was a for who was briefly a thing on this podcast because we stumbled upon the description that that Fitz had been quote out to lunch when necks were handed out, uh, and I don't know why, but we were we were taken by that.
2: Yeah, it, it stuck right.
1: <laughs> last uh, last question on this sort of sequence of, of questions is: Was there anything that you couldn't find? Was there anything that he published that just is is has been disappeared?
2: No, I was able to find everything that I that I looked for. Um, I mean, luckily for us, the the bulk, the vast majority of Angel's work was published in the New Yorker, and so it's all there uh, in the archives. But he, you know, he did some newspaper op eds occasionally, but always in big places like the New York Times and the LA Times. A couple of things for sports, I think, and maybe Sports Illustrated. Uh, but I, since I was confining most of my research to his stuff in the New Yorker, I was able to find all of it, and and most of his material, yeah, is out there. We just, we just, I, I just hope that it gets uh, his uncollected stuff gets gathered sooner rather than later.
0: You show the progression in his writing over the years, not just from non-baseball to more baseball, but then to greater length and then to blogging in the past decade or so, which I've enjoyed as well. You have at least one example in here, or a few early examples of Angel writing things that just aren't that great. <laughs> just it's it's kind of heartening just to, yeah. to see that everyone started somewhere and wasn't amazing immediately. So you just you cite this single sentence from how. Day Magazine, uh, an essay he wrote in 1954 that was pretty acclaimed and influential called Baseball, the Perfect Game, kind of hinted at what was to come. And the sentence just says, a solidly hit triple with the bases loaded is unbelievably exciting to see. And that's it. And it's just, you know, it's not the worst sentence, but it's just generic. And uh, there's adverbs in there. and, And it's just a contrast to later Angel, where almost every sentence just there's something to admire or a word that you may not even know, but sure. it, it, I look up a lot of words when I read him because I'm just not sure what those words mean, and yet it, it never really seems as if he is you know, writing with a thesaurus by his side looking for the fanciest word. He just knows those words, and I'm sure he uses them in speech, and, and given how he grew up, that's, that's no surprise, but yeah. it kind of broadens your, <laughs> your vocabulary to read him in a way that doesn't seem pretentious.
2: Oh, there's no doubt. I, but Going going back to your original, your first observation, one of the more, uh, as a writer, one of the more pleasing, I'm I'm sure that's the right word, but amusing things anyway, I discovered was just how routinely his early short stories were rejected by the New Yorker. I I mean, when I went uh, among the the, uh, archives I researched was the, uh, the New Yorker archives at the New York Public Library, and they have all of the old correspondence, a lot of it anyway, between Angel and his fiction writer, his fiction editors at New York, Gus Lebrano chief among them uh, and boy I got to tell you dozen or so stories consecutive stories rejected returned by the New Yorker I, I quote some of the rejection uh, <laughs> some of the rejections in the book uh, not to be mean but because I think it's 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 as you say it's it's instructive to see how even Roger Angel uh, had to uh, had to earn his dues you know had to, had to pay his dues and earn his yes. way up uh, especially at the New Yorker who you would have thought might have given him a little bit more forbearance given his background, but no. They would say this is this is not up to snuff. You've got to work harder exactly. on it. Uh, and even some of his early casuals were returned also. So yeah, he had to he had to pay his dues just like everyone. <laughs> yeah, that was
0: startling to see. To use yes. this word. <laughs> so the great pleasure of reading him for me over the last several years has been his blogging, which uh, I was sad to see he didn't do last postseason, but he had been doing right up through 2017. And sometimes it's just a, a few paragraphs, just a stray observation from. Watching a game that he'll file a day or two later, and the thing I love about it is that you're constantly aware that this man is living history and yeah. and he still has his his powers of crafting a sentence seemingly as well as he ever did, even though he's not attempting the extremely long pieces that he used to but it's not just that it's just that you're aware that this is someone who has been aware of most of baseball history. I mean, just, you know, do the math. He he started following baseball in the late 1920s, so he has experienced most of Major League history himself firsthand. And so he's someone who, you know, saw Lefty Gomez's first game, and yet here he is in 2017 writing about players and because he hasn't been covering the game on a daily basis, he now seems to discover some of these players for the first time when he's watching playoff baseball. That's true. And he will will make these comparisons to players who, you know, no one else alive or certainly writing about baseball can remember seeing and he'll just casually drop these these comps to players who played several decades ago and it's great because his memory is seemingly not just good for a 98 year old it, it's good period I don't know if yeah. it's as good as it always was but he seems to have almost perfect recall of these moments and this imagery that I am envious of because he can bring it all back and then replay it in his own mind and describe describe it as if he's seeing
2: it for the first time to a person when I when I would talked about them to, to Angel they, they would mention how remarkable his memory is how incredibly prodigious it is and uh, and it, it as far as I can tell it's it's pretty damn sharp still now going into his 99th year um, uh, and yeah you're right that when he, he could be looking at some rookie now right or second or third year player who's making a big splash in the postseason Altuve or someone and yeah, he see, you know, with well, the great thing about Angel, one of one of my one of the um, things I love about him is that he, he it's almost like he he lays uh you know like transparent overlays you know of, of the current game or, or old games onto the current game, and so in seeing Altuve or someone, he'll turn him slightly, and he'll suddenly see some either journeyman player from the '50s or some great player from the <laughs> you know from the mid-century, and he'll see something similar in their swings or something. Similar in the way they run a the, trot after a home run or something, and and yeah, he's always connecting present game, which people both love and complain about, to the old game, which people both loved and complained about, and always, always showing us the 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 the, uh, the way the games are. The current game is tethered to to, to its history. I mean, nobody right. has a through line like Angel. It's just remarkable. He saw, like you say, Gomez. He saw, Gehrig and Ruth hit home runs back to back in Yankee Stadium. <laughs> I think, as I mentioned in the opening, he. Uh, you know, you watch Daniel Murphy hit a home run. Who was born, what, forty years after Mel Ott retired? You know, who he also saw play. It's just, you say, do the math. It gets, it gets just remarkable after a while that mm-hmm. he's, yeah. And, and I was, just, I was, it was unfortunate that he he couldn't blog about the last postseason for whatever reason. And that was the first postseason that he hasn't written about uh, publicly since uh, nineteen sixty two. Yeah. Which is right. pretty remarkable.
0: And his recaps would come along in, you know, mid November. Right. Late November. It's yeah. A, late November it's kind, sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of amazing to to think that anyone would want to read that these days. But if if Roger Angel wrote it, they probably still would. Yeah. I certainly still would. But yeah. history repeats itself and baseball history repeats itself and he's seen that many, many times. And yet I guess that is a comfort to him or or something that you talk a lot about how he enjoys the community aspect Mm -hmm. of it and the belonging and ballparks are neighborhoods and we all kind of connect over this game. And you would think that by the time you get to his age, Every player, you'd think, well, I've seen dozens of players like this player before. And yet he doesn't seem to get sick of it. He's there in spring training again and he makes these connections and maybe it summons these memories and brings things back to his mind. But at no point does he think,
2: well, I've seen enough. Yeah. <laughs> and again, it, part of it is because it, it's his nature. It's, it's his, you know, his, his native temperament. This is the man he is, in other words. But he's just always open to, To the way the game might still surprise him when we were talking at one point for the for the book and i mentioned this i mentioned this in the in the book he 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 mentioned that decades ago as as players starting started to get bigger and faster and this is well before the the steroid era they were getting bigger they were getting faster they were hitting the ball you know further and throwing harder he was pretty sure that eventually baseball was going to have to redesign itself and move at length the length of the bases. I mean, the length from home plate to first and, and first to second, because eventually the so-called bang-bang uh, double play or bang-bang play at first or second, uh, that's going to be a thing of the past because we're just going to outrun the ball because we're bigger and faster. But he is amazed, as and now I am after he brought it up, that there are as many bang-bang plays in, in 2019 as there were 100 years earlier. Seventy-five years earlier, and those are the kind of things that he notices and and oh and 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 I must say uses, but uh, but recognizes as, as 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 the way the game is kind of majestic and, and and surprising and and perfectly designed, and it's just impossible for him to resist the beauty and and the the, the breathtaking fun of that. Even though the game has stiff armed, I should say the sport, not the game. The sport has stiff armed him in many ways. A lot of fans over the years but that kind of example of of the of, of the, the bang bang plays at first uh, occurring with with relative regularity 100 years apart it's the kind of thing that just that make, puts a smile on his face yeah and one of his big
0: concerns seems to be that players will get too big and too strong and too fast and we won't be able to identify with them anymore and, and put ourselves in their place which is interesting to me because i i already don't do that i think for the most part maybe i just started following the game at a point where they already were so dramatically different from your average joe that uh, i don't even think of them that way i I almost watch them more as if i'm watching a superhero movie or something and just kind of marveling at, at what they can accomplish and i don't think that makes me enjoy it any less although then when you do see some vestige or some sign that makes clear just how great they are whether it's say pitchers hitting, for instance, which I don't particularly like, but I I like that it reminds us how good all the other guys are. So that's uh, you can still enjoy the game, even even though they're almost a separate species at this point. So my last question for you, I I was reading an article or a piece or an essay or who knows what it was in the New Yorker earlier this month about John Hersey who wrote the famous hiroshima that took up an entire issue of the magazine and
2: yeah, that's a that's, great profile
1: it's it? so good
0: yeah. oh my yeah, gosh it Thank was you. very good yeah so <laughs> it's obviously this extremely celebrated piece and you know pioneered a new type of journalism but he was kind of uncomfortable with that legacy and carrying that mantle and yep. he seemed to feel that maybe fiction was more prestigious and he he just didn't really want to be the guy who wrote Hiroshima and uh, he wanted to be known for other things that he did. And I wonder whether you sense any of that at all in Angel, because, of course, he has been so accomplished in so many other ways in his career as an editor, in his short fiction career, in his capacity to cover everything at one point or another. Mm -hmm. He was a a movie reviewer, just subbing in for Pauline Kael for a while and uh, writing about other sports and culture. And his most recent piece from late last year is about voting and politics. So. He can kind of cover everything, and New Yorker editors over time appreciated that more and more and I think wanted him to apply himself to other topics and, and pour more of himself into pieces, which has worked out really well. But do you sense any bitterness or any desire to correct the record because people think of him as Roger Angel baseball writer and not just legendary writer-editor
2: at large? I don't, to be honest, uh, and I think part of that has to do with his, his modesty uh, whether or not that's a, a public persona, you know, you know, a public affectation or not, that's what he leads with, is that he, he, he shrugs modestly at, at his career. We must say, to her, you know, to Hersey's credit, he did continue writing novels. You know, he mm-hmm. he did really devote himself to that, something he, should, he was hopefully proud of at any rate. But I think w- with Angel's case, what, what what helped, if there was any sense that... I asked him, I, I didn't realize until I wrote the book, until I started researching the book, just how that the his baseball career was his third career actually yeah you know he was an editor as we discussed and and also a short story writer and when the stone arbor his first book a collection of his stories was published in 1960 it did fairly well it got good notices in some big places and and won some, some of the individual stories won some awards so he had this modest career as a short story writer and i asked him about it why he stopped and he still told me that he just had no more stories left in him to tell and I think that he, unconsciously or otherwise, transferred his desire to tell stories—you know, his this sort of narrative impulse—he transferred it to baseball, and he found as much satisfaction and artistic and aesthetic uh, confirmation in writing about baseball as he did, uh, more so, I think, than in writing uh, short fiction, which, of course, he continued editing until relatively recently um but also i think what helped was that he did have the the counterbalance or the, the 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 supplement of being a fiction editor because yes he wrote about baseball but as we know for the bulk for the majority of his career he only wrote three pieces a year <laughs> granted they were 30 40 pages each and they were remarkable and he worked long on them and traveled throughout the season watching games but he only published three baseball essays a year every day when he wasn't at a game or watching watching a game, he was in his office working with fiction writers, some Mm -hmm. celebrated ones as well as some sort of obscure ones. And that was a daily grind. I mean it's a work it's work he loved and it's work he's very, very proud of. And I think in this day to day give and take between himself and fiction writers, where they talked about art all day and they talked about aesthetics and they talked about how to how to improve a story? How to make this evocation of you know the world in a literary realistic way? How to make it better? How to make it bigger? I think that satisfied him or nourished him uh, in way in any ways that maybe writing about baseball didn't. So I think that was sort of a a kind of a perfect fit for him to be a fiction editor as well as a this tremendous baseball writer. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I don't know if the world is a better place because he found his way to baseball. Uh, he may have written about other things in and, and just as celebrated a way if he hadn't, but as Baseball appreciators, I think we're lucky that he did, and and that he is still around and still at the height of his powers no in a lot of it. ways. So no doubt about it. Yeah, I'm glad that he greenlit this book, and uh, I'm glad that you wrote it, and I think it's a, a great resource for people who already like Angel and want to be reminded of why, and perhaps to be introduced to some pieces that they haven't come across. And also, I think for people who have heard about him, but don't know why everyone raves about him, this is a good introduction and one that will send you off down countless avenues as you look up various pieces that are brought up in here. So I hope so. The book is called No Place I Would Rather Be, Roger Angel and a Life in Baseball Writing. You can go get it now. And Joe, we thank you very much for coming on.
2: Guys, thanks so much. I appreciate it.
0: That was fun. Okay, that will do it for today. Thanks for listening. If you're listening on Tuesday, happy potential Shohei Otani return day. Can't wait to watch him take his first consequential post-surgical swings. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already done so. Joseph Villarreal, Roger Cryan, Nick Bounds, Rob Stilwell, and David McCallum. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectivelywild. You can rate, review, and Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Please keep your questions and comments for me and Sam and Meg coming via email at podcast at or via the Patreon messaging system if you're a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. On his birthday, no less. Happy birthday, Dylan. You can pre-order my book, The MVP Machine. It comes out in about four weeks, so please do get your pre-orders in. And if you do or you're planning to, send an email to themvpmachine at gmail.com with some proof of your pre-order. A screenshot or photo of the receipt Or just the pre-order confirmation And you will qualify for some pre-order bonuses And goodies that we will send you once the book comes out Including some extra writing and a conversation About the book between me and Travis And some additional documents Everyone go read some Roger Angel It will brighten your day Remember what Roger wrote in 2014 Baseball's absolute unpredictability Makes amateurs of us all And we'll be back, hopefully to brighten another of your days A little later this week
1: And here I sit The retired in the sun the retired right in the Sun and I'm blue the retired right to in the Sun and I'm blue the retired right in the Sun